0: Hey plant friends, here we are again. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill. I am the host of this show, the Plant Proof Podcast and creator of plantproof.com, your one-stop shop for all things plant-based nutrition. Everything is 100% free. This episode with Dr. Michelle McMacken is full of practical information. Trust me, you're going to want to get your notepads out. Before I dive into the episode itself and the content that we cover, I just wanted to check in with you guys. Do try and reply to as many messages as possible on social media and email, but honestly, it's it's very hard. Plantproof.com, this podcast and everything on social media, it's a one-man show and it's something that I don't want to make money from. And shortly when I get time, I will share my full story, perhaps get someone to interview me on this show and go through how I can invest so much time into Plant Proof without necessarily needing to monetize it. It's not something I have really ever spoken about. I've always rejected offers to speak at events and I hate the word entrepreneur and I really hate it and and I like a simple, quiet life, but I think... As this community grows, it's important that I can connect with all of you as much as possible and share my journey. Once again, folks, some really special comments and sharing on social media this week. I always love to see what you're doing while you're listening to the Plant Broke podcast episodes and just hear how each episode inspires you. Some awesome Instagram stories this week. So thank you. Now this week's episode. I had Dr. Michelle McMackin back on the show. If you remember, she was originally on the show earlier this year. I believe it was episode two. And if you haven't listened to that one, definitely worth checking out one of the top ranking episodes so far. Michelle is an absolute wealth of knowledge. And in this episode, we get a little update on her Bellevue Hospital program, which we spoke about in episode two. Before we dive deep into what the optimal diet is. Is there actually an optimal diet? What does it look like? How diets like paleo and keto fare? What type 2 diabetes is and the role of nutrition for managing and reversing type 2 diabetes. We talk about coconut oil, dairy, and lots more. Certainly an information packed episode with bucket loads of info to walk away with and think about. So if you know anybody doing the paleo or keto diet or someone who has type 2 diabetes or is pre-diabetic, then please share this episode. Just flick them the link and suggest they have a listen. Let's dive into it. Hope you enjoy the app. Dr. Michelle McMacken, welcome back to the Plant Proof Podcast.
1: Thank you. It's Psyched to be back.
0: Yeah, it's really cool. I think we we first did, I think you were episode 2? Which was back in March or April this year, two thousand and eighteen.
1: April. Similar weather to now.
0: Yeah, it's it's got really cold in New York (laughs) just for my arrival. So (laughs) I I packed one or two pieces of clothing suitable for this weather, but I might have to go shopping.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say.
0: (laughs) So what's going on? What's what's news since last time we caught up? I know that you've been you seem to have been very busy with the Training of, of medical students and the curriculum side of things yeah. that I think last time you mentioned, and also seem to have been attending a plethora of plant based events and net- networking with many of you know other great doctors in sort of lifestyle medicine. Can you give us a bit of an update?
1: Yeah, sure. So since we um, since we last spoke in April, I've done some public speaking to uh, to doctors around nutrition. That's one of my passions, and actually the Big event I did in April was at the American College of Physicians, which is a big gathering of internal medicine doctors here in the states. It's a group that has about one hundred and fifty thousand members, and this is their national meeting. So I was giving a talk on basically evidence based nutrition and food as medicine, and that was a lot of fun because I I actually planned for about maybe seventy five to one hundred people to be at the talk. And when I walked in and I saw the room and the room was already filled and it started and it kept filling and then they had to turn people away. And it was like, they were, they were turning people away because of the fire codes. And there ended up being um, nearly a thousand doctors that came to hear about nutrition. So that's not a testament to me. That's just a testament to, you know, how much interest there is in this field. And I took that, um, I think that that's very heartening to see. And so that was a lot of fun. I gave that talk and Um, There's a lot of interest and reverberation from that and I've been giving some grand rounds of different medical institutions in the area and just really hardened to see how interested people were in that. And then in May, I spoke at the American Diabetes Associations um, one of their national meetings on uh, specifically on plant-based diets for diabetes, which is definitely my passion within a passion.
0: Which we're going to jump into <laughs> in, this, in this episode, type two diabetes and the role that, that nutrition plays in, in sort of managing it. Yeah. So you mentioned there was 150,000 members of, of what Organizations it's that called the American College of Physicians, American College of Physicians. Wow, and a large percentage of those are interested in lifestyle medicine, or
1: well, I think that I, you know, I have no idea what I, 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 to be honest, I had no idea what to expect when I signed up to give this talk. I didn't know how much interest there was going to be, but I was excited they even accepted my topic as a topic. And so, to see that many people pack a room, people were, you know, sitting in the aisles standing up and unable to, you know, they literally were turning people away because the fire code to me speaks to what I see as a trend throughout is that there actually is interest. Doctors are interested in learning more about nutrition. They recognize that there's a gap in their training. They recognize that it's important and they want to fill that gap.
0: That's cool. Cause it's not like they, they don't want to learn or they didn't want to learn they just wasn't part of their course. And and now there's obviously enough noise out there and awareness that, that people sort of putting the hand up and saying, yep, I want to, I want to get involved.
1: Right, right. And, and obviously, you know, doctors eat too. So I think if nothing else, like people, when I give talks locally at my institution, I think that people are listening as much for their own health and their own, you know, and their family's health as they are for their patients. And, and that's great.
0: That's where it starts almost because I mean, like with smoking, when when so many doctors were smoking, it would have been very hard for them to be advising their patients to quit, right? Correct. So overall you're feeling quite positive with where things are heading and, and I guess the last twelve months, what you're seeing in terms of the medicine in this country?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty hopeful about it. I know that, you know, the next week I'm going to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine meeting and they have a record number of attendees there too, which are Um, health professionals, not just physicians, but health professionals interested in using lifestyle medicine as a tool. And I I think it's important to be clear that we're not talking about using food or nutrition to fix everything. And I think that would be irresponsible to say that you can leverage nutrition to fix absolutely every single health problem out there. There is absolutely a role for medications. And my perspective is that we need to Use every tool in the toolbox. Leverage both to the best that we can. And what bothers me that I used to do, and now I know, I know, I know better, is not just jump straight to medications when there is a lifestyle solution. And of course, not every doctor and is in a setup where they have the support to do that. It's very hard to do. We don't have a lot of time with patients. We don't have the training. But I think that I think there is an interest, and I think people are starting to recognize that we do need to try to fill that gap.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like the point that you're making there. That it's not about sort of undermining medicine, traditional medicine, but it's, it's holistic, working together to find the best outcome. Whether that's a combination of right. of the traditional Western and and nutrition or or whatever.
1: Right. Yeah. So, so the other big thing I've been working on all summer is very exciting, which is putting together along with a group of other doctors and, and and folks at my institution and with the support of the Brooklyn Borough President, Eric Adams, who is an amazing, amazing advocate for healthful eating and plant-based nutrition. We are putting together a plant-based lifestyle medicine program at my hospital. And to my knowledge, this is going to be the first program of its kind, focusing on plant-based lifestyles in a what we call a safety net hospital system. So I work at uh, Bellevue Hospital, which is part of the, the larger health and hospital systems in New York City. And we exist as a resource for all, anyone who wants to receive excellent care, but especially people who um, don't have health insurance or what otherwise would not necessarily be able to, to have the same access to care. So we're part of the safety net system and we are going to be offering this program to absolutely anyone who is interested in learning more about how to transition to either a fully plant-based diet or as far as they want to go on the spectrum towards a plant-based diet.
0: That's incredible. So has that already started or when's that going to be rolled out?
1: Well, we are just wrapping up our hiring process now. We're hiring a dietitian, a plant-based dietitian and a health coach, plant-based health coach. And we have four doctors. So we have um, two internal medicine doctors, a nephrologist, which is a kidney doctor, and a cardiologist. And we're all going to be working as a team, seeing patients. So we're hoping to start towards the end of November, beginning of December. So is
0: this going, you're going into the hospital or is it is it people that have sort of already been discharged and then they're seeing your team? How does that work?
1: Yeah, the latter. So it's basically people who are coming, it's like the same way you'd go to a regular doctor's appointment, but in this case, you're going to learn about how you can Change your diet and change your lifestyle to address um, we, what we really want to focus on are lifestyle related conditions, things for which we have extremely strong evidence that a plant based diet can help prevent, treat, and even reverse. What are
0: some of those? So,
1: basically, we're looking at six different conditions. We're looking at heart disease, because obviously, we have a huge amount of evidence that plant based diets can, can work for heart disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, type 2 diabetes. Pre diabetes, which is that sort of precursor condition to type two diabetes, and overweight and obesity.
0: And if you added up the number of deaths over a year, what what sort of percentage are coming from that that those six causes? Is that like no, that's
1: a great question. I would say, well, we know, well, we know that heart disease is still the number one cause of death, at least in the United States, and cancer is right behind it. But diabetes is on the list as well. It's like the seventh. Hi- hypertension um, is a, is a huge risk factor for stroke, which is is I think the third leading cause of death, you know? So this is, um, and then obesity plays into all of these things. And as does high cholesterol is a huge risk factor, of course, for heart disease. So they're all interconnected and they're all amazingly responsive to lifestyle changes. Again, these are not, there are definitely people who have these conditions who require medications, absolutely. And our job is not to say to every single person who walks through the door, you got it, you're gonna get you off all your meds. Our goal is to say, how can we look at your situation? How long have you had diabetes? How long have you had heart disease? What's your situation? How can we optimize your lifestyle so that you have the best possible outcome? And in many cases, what that means is some people will be able to come off medications um, or at least lower the doses and almost everybody gets healthier. So it's 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 literally like the most rewarding thing you can ever imagine to take care of people and, and, and have this happen.
0: It's amazing that that, that initiative taking place here for the first time, right? Yeah. Like how, how are the patients getting referred to you guys? How do they find their way to you? Cause I assume if they're going through that regular system, someone is pushing them, you know, towards going and seeking out some help around their nutrition and lifestyle aspects. So who, who's that person that's yeah. doing that?
1: So we're, we are definitely marketing this program to physicians and other health professionals to suggest it to their patients we are equally marketing the program just to the general public, because we all know that there are many people out there who are sort of ahead of the curve in terms of wanting to look at a nutritional or lifestyle response to their illness that their doctor may not be on board with. A patient might say, well, I really want to learn how to eat healthier, but I don't know how to, I don't know how to do that. I want to adopt a plant-based diet, but my doctor's never heard of it. And so we know that there's a huge number of people out there who are interested in learning more, and we wanted to be there as a resource for them. So basically, we have a two-pronged approach. Patients or interested people who hear about the program and want to join can just call the hotline and get an appointment. And similarly, if, if doctors or other health professionals want to refer somebody, they can give the patient the information the patient can call. So we're really going to be selecting for people who are have some curiosity around a plant-based diet and definitely are interested in changing their lifestyle.
0: And are you looking at sort of keeping some data? Because I can sort of see this from a global perspective almost as a bit of a blueprint for other countries, other states to look at. How are you going to measure the effectiveness of this, this initiative and, and what your team does?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So We're actually teaming up with researchers, our institution who are, this is like what they do for a living is measure and evaluate programs. So they're going to be evaluating how much change people make. We're going to have scales around behavior change. We're going to have actual feedback on, you know, what did you like about the program? What did you not like? And we're going to be measuring clinical outcomes. So how much did your blood sugar improve, your blood pressure, your body weight, and so forth, you know, with patient's permission, of course. So we're going to to look at in the first six months, what kind of outcomes we're seeing now, six months might not be long enough to see for some people to see changes, especially if they're enrolling towards the end of those six months, you know, it it can take time for some people to see big changes, but we're definitely going to be tracking that.
0: And I know we're going to jump into type two diabetes and what the role of nutrition is and get into some examples of things to maybe eat more of and less of, but at a high level from your clinical experience, do people find this transition, people with these chronic diseases, do they find it hard to, to transition to a plant-based diet based on the, like the, the whole food type recommendation that I'm assuming your, mm. you, your team is, is providing them with or are most people able to grasp it fairly quickly and over what period are you finding that they have that sort of confidence to sink their teeth into it?
1: My experience is that it's super variable. I have people that come in that know somebody who's been plant-based or have heard about it and those people are a little bit more primed to make the changes. And then I have people for whom I'm the one bringing it up. They've literally never heard of it and it and can sound super foreign to them. I tend to try to break it down into sort of demystify what a plant-based diet is for people by starting with an understanding of the foods that they already like to eat that are happen to be plant-based. And so I I sort of we talk about like wh- you know what are the foods that you like that are already plant based and how can we grow those foods in your diet and sort of gradually start crowding out other foods. Um, That's familiar. Yeah, so it's familiar to people. And I, I again, I take care of a super diverse patient population now, so I take care of patients from all over the world. And frequently, I'm doing the counseling through interpreter phones. And we're on Google Images. They're telling me what they eat. I the interpreters telling me and i'm google imaging it and we're pointing at the computer together to figure out what it is <laughs> i mean it's pretty fun um but it depending on where the person's starting from it may not be it's not going to be an overnight thing they have to work in how are they going to work with their family on this and their you know access to foods and we we go through all of that so for some people it's super easy and other people it's 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 more challenging
0: you're obviously you're analyzing what they're currently eating although they're diverse what are the commonalities where do you think most of these people are going wrong and is there Is there other people that walk through the door that have chronic disease who are are already nailing a plant-based whole food diet and you're like, wow, these guys are already doing everything that they could be from a nutrition perspective and still have type 2 diabetes?
1: That's an excellent question. So for the first thing, the commonalities, listen, I think that people who have never heard of a plant-based diet don't, most people definitely have safe meat in their diet. And And I think that the meat that I hear the most about is chicken chicken is a very common food in most people's diet and they most people perceive it to be a healthy food and so they're eating chicken
0: sometimes two or three times a day why do you think most people would would think it's healthy is it because it's white is it white meat or
1: yeah i mean i think that i think that people have heard you know there are we do have at least in the united states many of the guidelines are that you know in, you should eat more poultry and eat more fish instead of say red meats and processed meats. And so the interpretation is that those are the healthiest foods and it's people don't realize that there is not only is it possible to eat a diet without those foods, it may actually be healthier. And in my opinion, it probably is at least certainly not. People should not be eating those foods at the level that they currently eat them. So I think there's that. And then of course, there's all the things that you and I know about, you know, people grow up eating them. They taste good to them. It's their tradition, cultural reasons, comfort food, uh, all the stuff that we know. So, so that's, I think that's probably a huge commonality. I, I have yet to find someone who comes to my office who does not eat, say poultry. That's a very common thing. And is
0: there a lot of like candy and processed foods and like that sort of junk food, chocolate bars, and things like that.
1: Uh, some, yeah. There's some. I, it, again, it really depends where the person's coming from. Definitely, I mean, most people have some processed foods in their diet to start with.
0: But those are the foods that I think most people know they're not healthy. It's the thing. Whereas, like, exactly the, the the animal products. They're probably when you're when they're when you're asking for their diet, they probably start with those, thinking that oh, we'll start with the healthy stuff. Yeah. And they start reeling off the chicken and the fish and the eggs. Because, you know, genuinely they've probably been, been trying to do the best.
1: That's right. No, no Exactly. I mean, I think that people, people have, not everybody, but a lot of people have sort of at this point had it drilled into them that, you know, they shouldn't be eating a lot of sugar, sugary foods, you know, to the point where they're now worried about fruit, um, which is another whole conversation, but they kind of get it. Many people are now, you know, in 2018, understand that probably white bread is not the healthiest for them or even white rice. And they come to me with a guilty feeling around bringing up the white rice that they're eating, but they don't have the same level of concern about some of the other foods that I consider to be, you know, if not equally unhealthy, at least something that they should, they should work towards diversifying away from like, like the excessive amounts of poultry in
0: the diet. And the second part of that question, are you seeing anyone coming in who already has the perfect diet?
1: You know, the perfect diet is a loaded term, but, but I think it's, it's pretty unusual, but it does happen. I've definitely had patients where as far as I can tell, and as far as they're telling me, they've had, they are doing the absolute best that they can. And they're really eating as close to an optimal diet that you could eat. And yet they're still living with high cholesterol or high blood pressure. And part of it is, I think prevention is very different than treatment or reversal. It really is. That's one thing I've am kind of i kind of learned in my path over adopting lifestyle medicine is that when we're talking about preventing a chronic disease, it's actually much easier. When if someone's already had high blood pressure for a number of years, you start having this you know, remodeling phenomenon of the blood vessels. So the blood vessels are stiffer. There's other changes that, that just naturally happen when people are living with certain chronic diseases for a long time that, that makes it the threshold for reversing those conditions is actually much higher. There are many people for whom you can actually dramatically improve their blood pressure, maybe get them off medications. And then there's some people who are going to end up probably staying on medications, even though they have an optimal diet, but hopefully a lot less. And again, my goal is to just to get people to the most optimal place of health that that's still within their goals. You know, if someone tells me like, hey, I just I don't really I'd rather take a lot of pills and eat a different way or have a different lifestyle. That's 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 you know that's their um, that's what their goals are and that's their preference. We'll keep talking about it. Maybe that will change, but but yeah, I, I try to, to just work with people as to how much they want to do.
0: And I guess everything that you're doing is a very much a multi pronged approach by yes. going to conferences and speaking to the doctors. They're then hopefully speaking to their clients who or patients who don't have any signs of chronic disease yet, and educating them early enough to prevent them getting to the position where they then need to be referred to you.
1: That's the hope. That's the hope. I mean, it definitely starts, you know, for, for what it's worth, uh, there are definitely studies showing that patients tend to trust what their doctors tell them. And, 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 and it's kind of ironic because you're trusting in many cases, your doctor may not have learned that much about nutrition, but we do know across the board, people do trust what their doctors tell them. And I do think the vast majority of doctors mean well.
0: And I think most patients just assume that the doctors understand the nutrition. Right. So it's an assumption that they understand everything inside out, nutrition, medicine. And I guess the reality is it it is a lot to fit into one course.
1: (laughs) There's a lot. It's a lot that that, that's exactly right. There's it's hard to imagine fitting this into medical school education without actually changing the whole paradigm. And I think we maybe we talked about this before Mm. and last time we got together. But you know the paradigm is one that's very reactionary you're treating illnesses after they've already started and you're treating you're largely treating symptoms of you know when especially when it comes to lifestyle related diseases not not necessarily ever
0: addressing the root cause so so tell me this one's more for me but maybe maybe some of the listeners are also thinking this i've seen a lot of titles doctors titles that say now say internal medicine or lifestyle medicine is that a something that when you graduate you can you can just title yourself that because you have a more holistic sort of outlook on where where what the role of nutrition or is that like a specialty where people go and learn more about nutrition you're
1: talking about uh, lifestyle medicine now
0: lifestyle medicine yeah
1: lifestyle medicine has been around for a while as a term and now there's actually a the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is actually offering board certification so doctors and and other health professionals can actually become certified in lifestyle medicine. It's an exam and then you study for it and you, you know, you pass and, and then you have the certification in lifestyle medicine. And I believe it's open to, I believe it's open to most medical fields. Internal medicine is a different thing. So internal medicine is the, it's one of the branches of, of medicine, um, that you can choose after you finish medical school, as opposed to say choosing a surgical path
0: or So it requires ongoing training to get that title.
1: Internal medicine. Yeah. Yeah. So well, you you do your your residency training, which is typically three years, and then some people after that decide to pursue additional subspecialty training, like cardiology or endocrinology, or so forth. And then you have to every ten years, at least in the states, you have to re you have to take board exams uh, to uh, okay. recertify.
0: Okay, beautifully explained. Clears that up. All right, I used the word perfect diet before, and obviously that is a fairly loaded phrase, <laughs> but I know people. They, they want to know what is the optimal diet and there's, there's so much confusion out there. You're reading and talking about this daily. I'm reading and talking about this daily. I'm, I'm confused half the time by various papers that come out. It's like they, they use one tiny aspect of the study and the media run with a certain headline. Then all of a sudden, the general public are scared or fearing something and, and all of a sudden, we're back to asking the same question, which was already addressed a year ago which we can jump into coconut oil, dairy, things like that yeah. shortly. But what is the optimal diet and where do things like saturated fat and cholesterol and whether we should be eating lots of those or avoiding them, where does all that come in? And what's what's the science saying to you and, mm-hmm. and all of your colleagues when when asked about this and when you see all this stuff in the media, how do you respond to what the optimal diet is with some uh, level of evidence.
1: Yeah, so I think that the optimal diet, we know. I think we know enough to know what is what should be the basis of an optimal diet. And then there are definitely some lingering nutrition questions. There's always always going to be things that we still have to study and answer. But I think the evidence is very very clear that we should be eating primarily minimally processed or less processed foods. We should not be basing our diet in these what we call ultra processed foods, which are in the States, about 58% of calories are from ultra processed, not even processed, ultra processed. So industrially produced foods that have additives that are not necessarily found in nature.
0: It's crazy. Why is the general public you know, not more deficient in certain things or are those being fortified or...
1: Yeah. So so, some, so bread in the United States, bread is actually one of the top ultra-processed foods that are, that's consumed, not necessarily in Europe, but in the States it is. So a lot of the breads are obviously very, very refined grain products. They've removed the fiber and a lot of the phytonutrients and B vitamins um, and other vitamins. And they then are left with this very nutritionally deplete core that is turned into flour and typically either as as bleached and then sometimes made brown by adding (laughs) molasses or food coloring, or it's not bleached and it looks brown, which makes people think it's healthy, but it's a very, very processed food. And then then preservatives and industrial additives, high fructose corn zip and other things are added that turn it into this ultra processed food. And yes, they do enrich it with some of the nutrients that they've taken away. And that's a great thing if you're worried about thiamine deficiency or folic, fully. That's great that those foods have that. It would be even better if we got those nutrients from less processed foods.
0: So, um, so essentially it's the way of thinking there, I guess, from a food system is let's industrialize and let's create the most efficient way to create as much food as possible for as cheap as possible. And then to fit in with the food guidelines, let's put some vitamins and minerals back into it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think that's that's roughly accurate. And I think part of it that we're not saying is that these are also very hyper palatable foods and they are literally engineered to taste amazing. I mean, biologically, we're you know, we're talking about when we're talking about snack foods like chips or candies or all of these All these ultra processed foods are foods that we are biologically driven to crave.
0: Which makes nature, foods from nature, makes it very hard to compete.
1: Right. So it's, it's, you know, it's a combination of the food industry, the food distribution system, what's cheap. And then, you know, people, when you grow up eating those foods, that's likely what you're going to continue to, what's going to be familiar to you and what's going to taste good to you. And you're going to keep eating that way. So yeah, so ultra processed foods comprise 58% of calories and then that doesn't even count processed foods which are foods that start out as whole foods but undergo some processing but they don't necessarily have added industrial chemicals to them. So, so we're really eating the majority of our calories from processed foods, at least in the United States. And I think one thing that you could probably get every single person to agree with whether they're pro, <laughs> you know, whether they're keto, mm. paleo, Vegan, common ground. Yeah, whole food plant based. Most people and nutrition scientists agree on, you know, everyone can probably agree we need to cut down on processed and ultra
0: processed foods. To that point, we spoke previously in, in the last episode we did that that's, you know, no doubt why the Mediterranean diet stacks up so well against the standard American diet.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and there's other things about a Mediterranean diet too that are beneficial, but pretty much. Even if, you know, if you followed the American Heart Association guidelines, if you follow any of the guidelines that are out there, it's going to be healthier than the standard American diet. If you follow, and I know we'll we'll probably get into keto and paleo, an argument can be made that those are healthier than the standard American diet because you are eliminating, you're eliminating a lot of the ultra processed foods if you're doing, if you're following a keto style or paleo style diet that is low in processed foods. Now there's other problems, which we'll probably get into, but, um, so, so that would be my first, my first rung of, um, the optimal diet. And then the next rung is that the diet really should be, be comprised mostly of plants. You know, when I, when I give lectures to, to physicians on nutrition, evidence-based nutrition, I'm not giving a talk on plant-based nutrition. I'm giving a talk on evidence-based nutrition. And that actually dovetails very nicely with plant-based nutrition It's a probably, you know, a rough estimate would be the evidence is solid that we should be getting at least 80 to 90% of our calories from plants in their less processed form. What you decide to do with your extra 10 to 20% of calories, there are incredibly compelling arguments to be made for making it a fully plant-based diet.
0: From a health point of view or from an ethical
1: ethical point of view and from an environmental and planetary point of view. But my position is, although I would love for all of my patients to be 100% plant-based, I'm a huge believer in that. I think getting my patients and the population at large up to an 80% plant-based diet would be so huge. I mean, we're starting right now. We're getting, we're, we're, you know, we're getting on the average, you know, six percent of our calories from whole plant foods. We're, we have a long way to go. You know, I, the common ground that I would see with someone who's not 100% plant-based is like, let's just get everyone to move in that direction. And that's my message when I talk to doctors. It's like, let's just get people moving along that spectrum.
0: And it's a win-win-win for yeah. all of those things, all of those pillars we just spoke about, whether it is health that's right, or ethical or sustainability. That's right. Paleo, you mentioned paleo. Obviously, paleo does include some animal products. They remove certain things like grains They're sort of anti-dairy. But one thing that the paleo community and the I guess plant-based community do not see eye to eye on is the role of saturated fat and cholesterol. And, you know, there's there's been some stuff recently where various various sort of well-known paleo people have come out and you know been quite strong in their opinions that the science for saturated fat and cholesterol causing increased chance of total mortality, saying that it, there is no association and this has led to confusion among people of the general public and, and people giving nutrition advice. What do you say to that and what is the evidence around saturated fat, cholesterol and longevity?
1: Sure. Sure. So first of all, I do think it's super confusing. And I think if I had not personally taken the time to do a lot of reading and nutrition and and study nutrition, I would be as confused as the next person. And it's even still confusing. So I want to validate anyone who's confused out there, it's understandable. But I think the simplest way to think about it is you have to always remember that when you do nutrition science, any kind of nutrition science research you always have to think about if you're increasing one nutrient or decreasing one nutrient, what are you eating instead? So this is extremely relevant when it comes to the saturated fat studies. So just to back up and talk about, you know, what is saturated fat? So saturated fat is one of the three types of fat. We have, we have saturated, we have mono, we have polyunsaturated, and we have trans fats. So I guess there's four types and so saturated fats are fats that do not have any double bonds, technically, and they're sort of rigid and line up and don't have any kinks in them. And they're good for structural support um, in, in, in various um, functions in our body. So saturated fats are largely found, they're found in anything that contains fat will contain some saturated fat. It's just a matter of percentages. So across the board, when you look at foods that are very, very rich in saturated fat, dairy fat is probably the highest Um, is one of the highest ones. We also have foods like, you know, beef, chicken, pork, lard, processed meats, certainly. And in the plant world, we have coconut oil, palm oil. But to some degree, even vegetable oils have some saturated fat. Olive oil, I think is, if I'm not mistaken, around 14 or 15% saturated fat. Nuts, avocados, all fat-containing foods have some. It's just a matter of how much. And likewise, dairy and beef, for example, have monounsaturated fat which is the type of fat that's also found in olive oil and thought to be heart healthy. And we'll get into why they may have different effects um, in those different foods. And then polyunsaturated fats are fats that are found typically in plant sources. Um, That's your typical sort of vegetable oils, found in vegetable oils, nuts and seeds. And um, trans fats are found, they're primarily found in when you take a vegetable oil and it's industrially processed. To become a solid at room temperature, so like your old school margarines used to have a lot That's of trans fat. Hydrogen, it's hydrogenated. hydrogenated. So anytime you look on the label and you see partially hydrogenated something oil, that contains trans fats. And of all the different types of fats, uh, trans fats are pretty much considered the the most unhealthy. That those are the ones again that everyone agrees are a big big problem as far as as far as heart disease, the,
0: cardiovascular risk. What are the main risk. sources of trans fats? So that.
1: Snack foods, yeah, yeah, processed foods. If you look at the label, and again, you'll it, it, it. The the marketing is very tricky because they're allowed to round down after a certain number. If they if they get the serving size low enough, and therefore the trans fat amount low enough, they're allowed to round down to zero, and they're allowed to say zero grams of trans fat per serving. And they just make the serving size small enough so that it becomes zero grams of trans fat per serving. But in the United States, a lot of that is going to be regulated out around trans fats because it's well acknowledged that they're extremely uh, atherogenic and promote cardiovascular disease. So um, back to saturated fats, I think that for a long time, the dietary guidelines back in the 70s and 80s, there was this sense that it was all fat that caused disease. So there was no division of different, there was no looking at different types of, of categories of fat. It, the, the message was everybody should eat a low fat diet. And I think that the response to that was industry cre- started capitalizing and creating foods that were low fat, but highly processed. So if you have something that tasted great with a lot of fat in it and you're removing the fat, what do you add to it to make it more palatable? Mm, yeah. It's probably sugar mm. or white flour. And so what we have is a generation that was raised to believe that they should be following low fat diets, but eating probably equally unhealthy foods because they were laden with refined grains and add sugar and actually eating more calories too.
0: And that's because there's no fiber. So you're not as satiated. So you can just keep eating those processed foods.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think, you know, because it's a couple of things, it's that the foods themselves, these hyper-processed foods are very low in fiber they're extremely dense in calories so you eat a small amount and you get a lot of calories at the same time and like i said before they're just engineered to make you keep coming back for more you just can't stop yeah. you know they just you just keep going so it's all those reasons. So for a long time, everybody thought low fat was it, and and they you know they're from from the work of nutrition epidemiologists, people like uh, Ansel Keys and so forth. That we knew that there was probably a connection between saturated fat and heart disease, and there were randomized trials that showed that. But the message that got out to the public was largely a low fat message. So fast forward to to about 2010, and then into 2014, there were a couple of big studies called meta-analyses that were published. And a meta-analysis typically takes studies that have done primary research and lumps all of the findings together to look at one to see if they can come up with what is the overview, you know, big take-home point from all of these studies. And so the meta-analyses that were published in 2010 and 2014, and then there was one in 2015, looked at saturated fat and the risk of cardiovascular disease and the risk of cardiovascular mortality as well as overall mortality. And what they found across the board was that there was no increase in cardiovascular disease or mortality for people that were eating more saturated fat. And so this kind of blew up and this is where we started seeing on the headlines of, you know, magazines butter is back and everybody was like, oh my gosh, all this time I was told to eat low fat and I was told saturated fat was bad, but you know, I love bacon and I love butter and I love this and that. And so this is great news. There's no, there's, there's no harm. So what we've realized since that time, and I think is really underappreciated in the general public is that again, it really matters what you're eating instead. So if you are eating a diet that's low in saturated fat, but you're filling yourself up with a lot of sugar and refined grains, turns out those things are equally bad for you. So when you compare that to people eating a diet that's high in saturated fat and you don't see any difference, that doesn't necessarily mean saturated fat is good for you. It just means that it's equally bad for you. So in modern era, and by modern era, I mean like the last five years, (laughs) there have been these um, fantastic studies that have actually been sophisticated enough with their methodology to make these substitutions. So for example, what if we replace 5% of calories from saturated fat with plant protein or with whole grains or with polyunsaturated fats, which are largely vegetable oils, then what do we see? In those studies consistently, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, we see consistently a benefit. So eating any of those categories of foods instead of saturated fat does tend to benefit you. So it's always about what you compare it to. I think the other thing I would add is that when people eat low saturated fat diets, they tend to be, um, historically, they tend to be high carb diets. And I don't really like to use the term carbs because carbs is just super confusing. What is a carb? A carb, there's no, it's not a, it's not a food, uh, it, it's, it's, an, it's a macronutrient. And so a carb could refer to anything from, you know, fruit to Fruit Loops. And there are vastly different nutritional differences. So when we're talking about a low saturated fat diet, what most people default to when they're eating low saturated fat historically has been a very refined, as I said before, refined carbohydrate based diet. And so you really can't interpret when you take two things that are equally bad for you, you really can't make an interpretation that one is actually okay. They're just equally bad.
0: Recently, there's been the pure, was it pure study? The one that came out? Yeah. Had. Uh, there was headlines about dairy saying that dairy isn't linked to to greater mortality. Is that what happened there? Were they comparing people that were consuming a lot of dairy to people who had higher diets and carbohydrates, but it wasn't clear what kind of carbohydrates they're eating or what, how how did that, they come to that conclusion?
1: Yeah. So the pure dairy study is interesting because, so the pure cohorts or the pure methodology is, it's a really, it's it's a really cool methodology because they're looking at, I think between 18 and 21 different countries around the world, which this hasn't been done, you know, to this degree with the sophistication up to this point. And what they're looking at is low income, middle income and high income countries. And that's really valuable information. But the problem is it's actually very hard to compare people who are eating dairy in a low income country to people who are eating dairy in a high income country. And when you do that, It's very hard to eliminate out some of the what we call confounders or variables that might be contributing to health outcomes that don't have anything to do with dairy. So, for example, if you're eating dairy, if you're from a low-income country and you're eating dairy, are you someone who's getting valuable nutrients from dairy that you literally probably couldn't get otherwise because of the infrastructure of the food in your country or so forth? And so, therefore, it probably is a benefit relative to something else you could be eating. Or is it that you happen to be someone who is higher income and so you can afford dairy and so you're also eating, you know, so you have higher access to healthcare? I mean, who knows? It's very, very hard to compare across countries and across income levels. And that's that's one of the problems with, with a study like that. The other big problem as I see it with the pure dairy study is that they only did a dietary assessment at the very start of the study. So they took all of the people that were enrolled in that study and did one questionnaire at the very beginning of the study and then followed them, I think for an average of seven or eight years. Yeah, well. And who knows, you know, who knows what happens to people's diets over that time. And I think the most, the most important point about the pure dairy study is that it's just one study. And we all, you know, all these headlines and reports are so tantalizing and people who love dairy are like, oh, good, look, here's a study that supports the way I like to eat. And we do that, too, in the plant based world. We're, we're just as guilty of doing that. But we all have to keep in mind that each additional study is just one more study. You have to think about the context that that comes in. And for many of us, it's hard to keep track of all these studies that are coming out. But I can I can tell you that the, the picture with dairy is quite mixed We have a lot of studies showing the potential for harm, especially with dairy fat. And then we have studies showing potential for benefit or neutrality. There's an overlay about, you know, a lot of the studies that do show benefit have been funded or industry funded studies. And that might be a concern. And we also have we have pretty solid data that dairy is tied to harms, not just of cardiovascular disease, but of different types of cancers. For example, prostate cancer. There's a very close association there dairy is tied to increases in hormones like insulin-like growth factor one, which causes increased cell proliferation and potential increased risk of, of tumor cell growth. Dairy is not a necessary food for us. And so when we choose to eat dairy, we're not necessarily eating something that we have to eat for health, at least in countries where we have access to those other you know, nutrients that you would find in dairy from other places.
0: So when you're Patients come in and and they are consuming a lot of dairy. What do you? How do you sort of suggest that they either wean off or the stop? And what are, what do you suggest they drink as an alternative?
1: I usually recommend if they're depending on what they're using dairy, and I always tell them like no one has no one has a need to drink milk of any kind. So even if you don't like almond milk or something like you don't even have to drink that. But if you want it on your you know, your oats or your cereal or, or whatever for, for cooking, that's of course fine. And I, most of my patients are actually pretty, they've had, they have access to the non-dairy milks, especially almond and soy. Those are, you know, readily available where we are here and not super expensive in this day and age. So that's a great option for them. And then, in, then there's tons of non-dairy options yeah. that are out
0: there. And if you've got the time, you can always make it yourself with. Yeah, with nuts.
1: Yeah, if you make it yourself that's great and one of the advantages to buying it is that it will be in many cases it can be fortified with calcium and and you know we can we can get into this later if you want but there, that is what they call sort of one of those nutrients of concerns for people eating a plant-based diet. We do need to we do need to pay attention to how much calcium we get in our diets and that's for some people if you know if you're eating 12 cups of kale a day, maybe you're okay. <laughs> and, and that's awesome. But but for many of us, it, it's nice to round it out with a fortified milk if you if you have access to
0: that. That would be a lot of chewing.
1: It would be a lot of chewing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so just coming back to saturated fat and, and fat in general, you said it earlier that there are healthy fat sources and we don't want to sort of demonize fat across the board. Saturated fat obviously does creep into a whole food plant-based diet. Sure. You said, um, sure. You know, Nuts and seeds and things like that—they do have saturated fat in them. Inadvertently, we're all going to be consuming saturated fat. Is there a certain amount that people should be looking to to not go over, or if you just sort of eat balanced whole food diet, you you will be fine? And I guess my second part of that question is: is saturated fat is it essential? Do our can our bodies make it? What's what's the what's your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, can I answer the second one first because it's easy. It's yeah. not essential. <laughs> at all. We make it. We are capable of make, manufacturing saturated fats. We do a great job of that. So you don't need to consume any saturated fat. The only essential fats that we need to consume are the omega-6 and omega-3 fats, which are types of polyunsaturated fats. And so we can find those in a plant-based diet quite readily through nuts, seeds, avocados, even, I mean, all, all plant foods contain some fat, um, whether it's you know in different quantities, so you can eat readily get those and and great you know great sources of omega threes. Just for the for the listeners, are are the ground flax seeds, chia seeds, hemp seeds, walnuts. Walnuts are a great source, and um, and of course you know for those of us who there are some situations where I do recommend taking a direct. Active form, I call it, of omega three, which is the DHA and the EPA, and we can get that from algae based sources that are readily available online and uh, yeah. you know in stores. Sold on
0: Amazon and exactly pretty much every health food store these days.
1: Exactly, and and that's sort of another topic into itself. But I do think that the evidence is probably mounting that many of us should think about getting an algae based source. Not everyone converts the parent form into the active form. LA, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah um so when you're eating the the flax seeds and the chia seeds and so forth you're getting the ALA but how much of it are you converting to the active form so i think the the thinking is starting to move in the direction of if you're eating a fully plant-based diet that is something that you should consider looking into getting the algae based DHA or EPA and particularly if you have certain chronic health conditions like certainly if you're pregnant or breastfeeding that's the recommendation if you are um if you have diabetes or high blood pressure you probably or you're older you're not going to convert as well either so those are those are strong recommendations yeah. there
0: too and it's super easy to take it comes in little like veggie oil capsule yeah. or, or like a you can get it in liquid form kind of smells but
1: yeah okay. there's spray there's sprays and that. so if you don't want to taste it you can just get it in the capsule yeah <laughs> but yeah so saturated fat is not essential we make it and so anything we consume is just kind of above and beyond. And you're absolutely right. We are, all of us are going to be consuming some saturated fat in our diets. And and that's okay. I think that as far as how much, what's the upper limit of what we should consume, it really depends on your, uh, the health conditions that you're living with. If I'm just going to answer this in a completely evidence-based way, I would say that if you have heart disease, I agree with the American Heart Association recommendation that saturated fat should be kept They're they're recommending less than seven five to seven percent of calories in your diet from saturated fat. That is hard to do. I mean, it is hard to eat, quote unquote, lean chicken and lean turkey and and not exceed that, because those foods have saturated fat. You know, and 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 it's caloric. Fat has more calories. So as a percentage of calories, you're going to get to that. You're going to hit that five percent pretty quickly. You know the reason I, I I agree with that recommendation is because it's a non-essential nutrient and it's quite clear that saturated fat raises our blood cholesterol levels the the um, low density lipoprotein or LDL which is the sort of the the most unhealthy form of cholesterol that runs that runs in our bloodstream and um, there's a very Direct linear correlation there,
0: and that's that's what causes the atherosclerosis, and then it's one of the
1: causes. One of the causes yeah. of
0: narrowing of like the the coronary artery in the case of a heart disease,
1: right? So there is a, a vast amount of evidence, and we could talk about this for five hours. But suffice it to say, there's a vast amount of evidence that the higher your LDL level, the higher your risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, it, it is all it's almost impossible at this point to refute that. So to the extent that lowering your LDL, we, we want to have you know as low an LDL as possible, essentially. So saturated fat is, is probably the number one driver of an elevated LDL. There are other things too, but saturated fat is a huge driver. So you want to get that down. Saturated fat is actually also very pro-inflammatory. It causes inflammation at the cellular level. And we'll talk about this when we talk about diabetes, because it's very relevant there as well. So for people with heart disease or at risk for heart disease or diabetes, I would agree that you really want to keep that as low as possible. But I don't recommend anyone go around tracking their exact macro and micronutrients unless you are, you know, there's some specific reason why you need to. If you're just eating a varied diet that's based in mostly whole plant foods, you are naturally going to get your saturated fat down to a healthier place.
0: So are there any sort of standout though, plant foods, or is it, I guess it's probably like the processed oils that if you did have chronic disease, you're having eating 100% plant-based diet that you would want to limit?
1: Well, I think that the the most obvious one in the plant world is probably the coconut and palm oil products. Uh, so there's so much controversy about coconut oil. It's definitely got this health halo around it.
0: It's been made sexy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Coconut, exactly. as
1: we made <laughs> And, you know, coconut, uh, you know, many um, coconut tastes great, right? It t- it's a delicious food. I think that if you're, if you, if you enjoy coconut, it's eat the coconut meat. At least you're getting the fiber and some of the other nutrients. But pure coconut oil is, you know, like any oil, it's 100% fat. And in this case, it's primarily saturated fat. I think it's some estimates between 85 and 90% yeah. saturated fat. Now, you'll hear people talk about what it's a different type of saturated fat. And, And there's definitely some truth to that because we probably should not use the term saturated fat. We should say saturated fats because there's different saturated fats. There is some biological diversity. One of the saturated fats in coconut oil is lauric acid. It's a 12 carbon chain, medium chain saturated fat.
0: Which is why you say MCT. Exactly. Exploding.
1: Exactly. And it doesn't. It doesn't raise, in the in the feeding trials, it hasn't been shown to raise LDL cholesterol as much as butter, but that's not a very high bar. So we know for sure that it raises LDL cholesterol, for sure. What we don't know about coconut oil is we don't have big outcome studies on actual events. So if you feed people diets that are high in coconut and coconut oil compared to people that eat low amounts of coconut oil, where you keep everything else the same, Do they have lower risk of heart disease, diabetes, all that? We don't have those studies. So all we're going on is that we know coconut oil tends to raise the cholesterol, the bad forms of cholesterol. And that's not a great idea. Um, You'll also hear people claim that coconut oil tends to raise the HDL, which is the high-density lipoprotein and tends to be uh, called the good cholesterol. And that's really tricky because we used to think that raising HDL was a great thing and that the ratio of LDL to HDL was a, was something that you know really mattered. But the reality is we now know from a lot of drug studies and other studies that what we do to HDL artificially, whether we raise it through food or raise it through drugs, doesn't actually affect heart disease outcomes, cardiovascular risk. It's much more about the function of HDL. So You can experimentally measure the function of your HDL, but commercially, you know, it's not that you wouldn't go to your doctor and get your HDL function measured. But what HDL does is it actually removes cholesterol from our tissues when it's not necessary and returns it back to the liver where it can be removed from the body. So we really need HDL to function well. And the number that you get on your blood test does not tell you anything about how your HDL is functioning.
0: People are listening and they're concerned and they're getting their blood test results What are the important numbers to look at? So if it's not the ratio, is it the total cholesterol? Is it just the LDL particles? What what do you recommend there? Well,
1: what I tend to look at with my patients is I do look at the LDL number. Now, the LDL tends to be a little bit tricky to interpret sometimes because on most standard cholesterol tests, it's a calculated number. It's not a measured number. So if other elements of your lipid panel are not normal, say, for example, your triglycerides are really high then it's artificially going to make your LDL number look lower than it really is. So another thing you can do if your triglycerides are high and your LDL looks okay, what you really should be doing is taking your total cholesterol number and subtracting your HDL. And that's kind of a quick way of looking at your risk as well. And so you want that number, your total minus your HDL to be as low as possible, because when you subtract out the HDL from the total, what you're left with is pretty much all the bad stuff. Yeah, so that that just contains all the bad stuff. The last thing I'll say about HDL is that HDL can actually be a pro-inflammatory molecule too. So again, your standard blood test isn't going to tell you that. So I don't cheer when my patients go on a higher fat diet or higher saturated fat diet and see their HDL go up. I, that's a cause to me of concern. And similarly, when my patients go 100% plant-based, and if, if especially if they're eating a lower fat plant-based diet, and their HDL drops along with their LDL, which drops, that doesn't bother me at all. I, I really want to see the triglycerides coming down and I want to see the LDL coming down. And therefore, most of the bad stuff is coming down. And I don't worry so much what the HDL is doing.
0: Well, the touted is good stuff.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Okay. So that's saturated fat. And I guess a little bit about cholesterol in the blood test. But what about dietary cholesterol? Is saturated fat in the diet, is that more of a contributing factor to raising this LDL cholesterol or what about actually dietary cholesterol like in eggs for example
1: the the quick answer to that is that it's not as obvious a connection with between dietary cholesterol and blood cholesterol so it's not a linear like you can you can feed someone saturated fat and just watch their LDL cholesterol go up unless if you're not changing any other variables which becomes relevant when you talk about keto diets by the way But if you keep everything else the same and you just increase saturated fat, your cholesterol in the blood will go up significantly. That's not always the case with dietary cholesterol. And so that's what leads to a lot of the confusion around dietary cholesterol. The other thing is the way a lot of the studies are designed to look at dietary cholesterol is actually taking people who are eating diets that are already filled with saturated fat, that are high in saturated fat. So at that point, it becomes kind of a drop in the bucket. If you're eating a high saturated fat diet and you add, you know, you add two eggs a day, it's not going to raise your blood cholesterol that much more. But if you're eating a really pristine whole food plant-based diet, for example, that happens to be pretty low in saturated fat, and then you add on a couple of eggs a day, you're much more likely to see an increase in your, in your blood cholesterol. I think that in many cases, except for eggs, it's pretty much a it, it's a moot point because they run together in most foods. Eggs eggs are kind of the one food where the the cholesterol predominates. It's le- and the saturated fat is a little bit less, um, but otherwise they kind of run together. So it's kind of a it's kind of a moot point. And do know that the cholesterol in our diets tends to promote the oxidation of LDL, the bad cholesterol, which then tends to directly promote atherosclerosis or the buildup of of plaques in our blood vessels. So it's not just, again, about the number. It's not that simple about what your LDL is doing. You could have the same LDL, you know, but, but if you're eating dietary cholesterol, it might be actually causing your LDL to be more pro-inflammatory.
0: Yeah. Well, so if, if someone walked into your clinic and, you know, they've got chronic disease and they come in and they, uh, you know, say, Dr. Dr. Michelle, I am looking at doing a paleo diet. So we're just pulling this back to, to paleo for a second. What, what advice would you give them in terms of paleo versus a whole food plant-based diet and how one may affect their health differently? I think that
1: the paleo, the paleo phenomenon is really interesting because the perception of what people ate in Paleolithic times is not always stacked up to what what we're learning about what people may have eaten in Paleolithic times. So for example, there's evidence to suggest that people in Paleolithic times, obviously it was, we're talking about huge, huge swaths of time here. It's not just like a, you know, it's not, it's not even just a thousand year period. It's a huge amount of time and different parts of the world. So people ate differently according to what they had access to. But in general, in most civilizations, people were eating really high fiber diet. They were eating between 70 and 150 grams of fiber a day. You know, for your for your listeners to give an example, you know, just to put that in context, the average, at least in the United States, the average person gets only about 15 grams of fiber a day. So what
0: types of foods were they eating to get that much fiber?
1: They were eating like really gnarly, <laughs> you know, gnarly fruits that you wouldn't even recognize now, like bananas that were just filled with fiber that were not you know, the bananas, this, the these supple, you know, b- genetically bred foods that we have now that are that look perfect in the store. That's, of course, not what they looked like then. And they were just getting eating whatever they could get their hands on roots, tubers, berries, these fruits.
0: In natural state.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so they were very fibrous foods and and they were also eating just what whatever they had that was available to them, essentially. But p- these fibrous plant foods that they were eating for a long time, people didn't realize they were eating that much because they don't just the way we measure and we, we look at you know, fossils of those foods, we eat, they, plant foods tend to disappear. You know, we didn't have the technology to, to find strands of fiber from, from so many years ago. Whereas now we understand where, you know, whereas animal foods, you could kind of tell that people were eating from the bones or things that lasted. So now we kind of know people were eating a diet that was much richer in plant foods than we first suspected. And also, you know, philosophically, I'm not sure that it's, we want to be necessarily eating a diet that people ate when they only lived to be 25 or
0: 30. They were essentially living to reproduce at that stage.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's not that, you know, if people died of infections or accidents, you know, traumas, but they didn't necessarily live long enough to get chronic diseases and chronic lifestyle diseases that we have now. So it's, we can't really say that 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 way of eating is necessarily protective against chronic disease because we just don't know.
0: The data is not there, right? The
1: data is not there and the data is not there now either. Mm. I mean, you know, there's not huge studies of paleo style diets for chronic disease prevention. I, they're really just, are, they just don't exist. What I can tell you that's good about a paleo diet is that if you're doing it, if you're eating a paleo diet that's low in processed foods, you're, you know, you're, you're if you're eating paleo, you're probably eliminating refined grains. You're hopefully eliminating a lot of added sugar. I think I think it's great that you are eliminating dairy to me, um, so it's probably an improvement over a standard western style diet, but I don't I don't think I think that there's ways to improve on it further.
0: Okay. Where does the the lower carb, higher fat keto style diet sort of fit into this conversation and stack up against paleo and uh, a whole food plant-based diet?
1: Yeah, so the very low carb sort of very high fat diet so we're talking about, you know, 50 grams of carbs a day, extremely low carbohydrate intake, and higher fat, 70% fat in the diet. This is a newer phenomenon that a lot of people have sort of likened to the, you know, it's sort of the the next generation after the Atkins diet. The interesting thing about a, a keto style diet is it actually is not a high protein diet where a lot of people might liken it to a high protein. It's not a high protein diet. It's a, it's a adequate protein diet. Because when you eat too much protein, you actually start making you start making glucose. And that's what you're trying to, you're actually trying to avoid. You'll stop making ketones and start making glucose. I think the key thing to remember about the keto, keto-style diets is we really do not have any long-term evidence. Uh, we have short to medium-term evidence, like on the on the order of a couple of years looking at what we call intermediate markers, like biomarkers, blood levels of cholesterol or triglycerides, blood glucose. But we don't have a lot of evidence on actual health events. So uh, cardiovascular events, risk of cancer. We don't have evidence on that specifically with keto diets. So the research is really in its infancy. And what we do know is that the umbrella term of low carb diets we have a preponderance of evidence showing that if you're eating a low carb diet that is based in animal foods it's a traditional low carb diet that very clearly increases your risk of cancer increases your risk of cardiovascular disease and it increases your risk of dying early that evidence is clear so if you decide to adopt a keto diet for short-term or long-term weight loss or improvement of other factors, you're you're taking a chance because you're, you're, there's just not science showing that it's beneficial long-term. And there's a lot of concern. I mean, a lot of the science pointing to that it might be harmful. There are also short-term risks and long-term risks around side effect profiles. If you look at the pediatric literature on ketogenic diets, these are diets that have been used for epilepsy, refractory epilepsy, and seizures uh, in in kids, in some kids. But when you look at the side effect profile, the list is is incredibly long. So kidney stones, mineral deficiencies, and and the list goes on and on and on. So I think that we we really need more of ev- I would need a lot more evidence before I would recommend this diet from the health perspective. And I don't think we're we're probably never going to get it. We have plenty of evidence that the diets that are built around plants are extremely health promoting and promote longevity. So that's what I'm going to recommend because they also can work for weight loss.
0: So do you think most people actually do this properly, this diet? And I, and, I mean, a lot of the photos that I see on social media of various keto meals, they, they seem quite high in protein.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that there was a really interesting... Piece, um, I think it was in Vox a few months back, where it, they basically talked about how most people who are following keto diets probably are not actually in ketosis. And obviously, if you're someone who's following a keto diet and you're measuring your beta-hydroxybutyrate levels, you know, then you're pro- then you know you're in ketosis. But the, I think most people out there, what they're doing is just trying to eat a higher fat diet and avoid carbohydrates. Again, the good things about that. The good things about that are you're eliminating the same thing, the added sugars and the processed grain foods. That's fantastic. And you are probably going to lose some weight. I mean, we all know people who go on keto diets and many of them lose dramatic amounts of weight right off the bat. But the interesting thing is that when you look at research that, that is conducted over one to two years, We don't have great data that that weight stays off. And that might be because people, it's hard to keep that diet going for the average person.
0: Why do you think the average person loses weight when they move to the the keto diet? Obviously they're consuming less calories than they were. Is that a result of just feeling super satiated from the high fat?
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. it. It's the main reason that obviously that anyone loses weight on any diet is just you are consuming fewer calories than you need. And so there's many different ways to do that. Some of which are healthy for you and some of which are not so healthy for you. When you eliminate an entire macronutrient, you eliminate basically functionally, you're eliminating almost all carbohydrates. You're going to be eating a lower calorie diet. And that's probably the primary mechanism by which a keto diet works for weight
0: loss. So at the end of the day, they're in a deficit, calorie deficit.
1: Right, And you can can do that any way you want. It doesn't mean it's healthy for you. But it does mean you will lose weight if you eat fewer calories than what you need. Now, there are some additional mechanisms. Uh, One is that your glycogen stores, which is the storage form of carbohydrate, we tend to deplete when you're in a keto state. You just use it all up and that holds water. So you're losing some water weight, at least at the beginning. That's not the main mechanism, but people do- It's like three
0: grams of water per gram of glycogen or something.
1: Yeah. So you lose some water at the beginning. You also- when you have a lot of ketones, they also tend to hold water. And so you sort of pee out more water that way too with the ketones if you are actually in ketosis. But really it's mostly a calorie deficit. And as someone who has been directing a weight management program for over 10 years, I mean, I people always come asking like, what is the best diet to lose weight? And my answer is always, there's a lot of different ways you can lose weight, but what I'm going to recommend to you as a physician is that we're going to pick the one that's healthy for you long-term and that you can stay on and that's sustainable for you. And then
0: get into a deficit in that, using that diet.
1: Yeah, you can get into it and you can get into a really slow deficit or you can do it quickly. There's that, that's that's another whole literature around what approach to take there. But the point is it has to be something sustainable and it has to be something, in my opinion, that's good for
0: you in the long run. It's that concept and the fact that I think carbohydrates by the general public and headlines haven't been differentiated between refined and unrefined and they've been demonized. Correct. Which has made a lot of people think, okay, to lose weight, I need to remove carbs.
1: That's right. I've banned the word carbs from my practice.
0: It's a terrible word. Yeah. And cause it's so non-specific. Yeah. It's it's a harmful term because as is fat.
1: Right. I mean, it, it, you're absolutely right. I mean, the point is we we shouldn't speak in terms of nutrients we should speak in terms of foods because like i said before monounsaturated fat in olive oil has a very different health effect than monounsaturated fat in beef or in dairy necessarily it's a it's a it's a symphony of nutrients in every food so is it packaged with you know what what else is it packaged with is it packaged with you know advanced glycation end products heme iron branch chain amino acids, other things that might contribute to disease or is it packaged with fiber and phytonutrients and so forth. So it's always about the package.
0: Yeah. These, these macronutrients essentially, I mean, they work on packaging and at a high level, give you an indication of roughly what's inside, but it, it does, it requires another another way of thinking. And I guess the best thing is it's actually really simple.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I feel like I spend so much time reading and, and, and studying the science to get up and stand and, and talk to people about nutrition. But at the end of the day, it, it's actually quite simple what we actually have to do. And when people overcomplicate it or read, you know, get gets pulled in by labels on the front of a box that say low fat or high protein or, you know, what have you, that's where things start to go wrong.
0: So just to summarize, wrap that up. Keto is high fat, it's low carbohydrate, moderate protein diet people will get weight loss results as a, a result by default of being in a calorie deficit most likely. Mm-hmm. But you're suggesting there's healthier ways of eating and consuming. Let's jump in to type 2 diabetes, which I know is one of your real passions when it comes to chronic illnesses. Let's start off, I think, by getting to the statistics. So how many people is type two diabetes affecting what type of people? Is it young people? Is it children or adolescents? Is it older people, males, females, fit people, people who are inactive? And how does it differ from type one diabetes?
1: Sure. So type two diabetes is more common than type one. And at least in the United States, about 12% of adults have type two diabetes. And around the world, I think it's something like 420 million people have type 2 diabetes. It tends to be, although there's there definitely a big genetic component to type 2 diabetes, it does tend to run in families. It is extremely tied to lifestyle habits and particularly to body weight. So it's very sensitive to changes in body weight as opposed to type 1 diabetes, which is really um, an autoimmune condition where the body tends to attack its own cells in the pancreas that make insulin, and therefore you have a deficiency or relative deficiency of insulin. So most of my practice and most most practices tend to focus on type 2 diabetes simply because it's more common. And what happens in type 2 diabetes is actually uh, super interesting, and I think it's important to understand why type 2 diabetes develops, what's the underpinning of it to understand how changing your diet and changing your lifestyle can improve your type 2 diabetes or or prevent it if you don't have it yet. So what happens in type 2 diabetes is really interesting because obviously we rely on, on insulin, which is again a hormone that's made by the pancreas to perform a number of functions in our body. And one of the big functions is it helps our muscle cells absorb glucose from our blood after a meal. And our our muscle cells are responsible for absorbing the majority of glucose after we eat. So when things are working properly, you eat a meal, your body makes insulin in response to seeing that your sugar go up and your insulin binds to a receptor on the surface of your of your muscle cells and a signaling cascade occurs inside the cell that brings little channels to the cell membrane that allow glucose to enter. So insulin's the old analogy is insulin's like a key that unlocks the door to let glucose in. And that's how it's supposed to work normally. So what happens in type 2 diabetes is that our bodies tend to be resistant to insulin. So the insulin's not working properly. And so in that same scenario when you eat a meal, your body will make insulin. There's plenty of insulin being made at least in the early stages and Insulin will bind to a receptor on the cell, but then that cascade of signaling does not occur inside the cell. Something blocks it. And therefore, you can't get enough of those little channels or doorways to the cell membrane, and glucose can't enter. So glucose is stuck outside. And people then think, well, it must be what I just ate. That's the problem. So I always use the example of a banana because people love to blame, say they love to blame fruit and and they're worried about fruit having too much sugar and so forth. So They'll eat a banana in that scenario and say, well, it's obviously the banana that's making my sugar go high and I, should never eat. I shouldn't be eating these foods because my sugar goes too high when I eat them. What we know is that it's actually not, has nothing to do with the banana, what's going on inside the cell, why your insulin's not working. What it has to do with is the buildup of certain types of fats inside of our muscle cells, as well as inside of our liver and even our pancreas. And there's this complex interplay between those organs. In the muscle cells, when you have the buildup of these certain types of fats, the insulin signaling just does not work. It just, insulin just does not work properly.
0: So, are those fats being synthesized within the muscle cell, or how are they getting in there in the first place to sort of block that?
1: Great question. So, what we know about it, so this is happening in both the liver and the muscle cell. And I'll focus on those two organs because they're the organs that are most responsible for helping our insulin work properly. So what we know is that it's partly a problem of too much supply and not enough use. So for example, when people tend to when people tend to put on a lot of weight on unhealthy weight gain, there's sort of this spillover effect from the fat cells. And you're not supposed to be storing fat in our skeletal muscle and our, our muscle and our liver. We're supposed to be storing it in our fat cells. but when we gain a lot of weight, sometimes, fat just gets released from the fat cells and travels over to the muscle and liver cells and gets stored there where where it causes all this insulin resistance. The other thing that can do this, if you're just eating too many calories consistently, I mean, if you have one or two, you know, bad days, it's not a big deal. But if you're consistently on a daily basis, eating more calories than what your body needs, there's also a spillover effect where the body just tends to store it as fat and store it as fat in the wrong places. And of course, there's, again, genetic predispositions to this as well. When it comes to fat, I think, I think sometimes there's a message out there that, um, in my opinion, is a little bit oversimplified, just saying that we eat fat, it gets stored as fat. It's not really that simple. And we know that from looking at you know people who eat high-fat diets, if they're losing a lot of weight, it might offset the fat that they're eating in this process. But- if you're eating a lot of fat, there will still be a spillover effect where fat gets stored in the wrong places and particularly saturated fat. We don't see this as much with monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats from primarily from plant foods um, to a point.
0: This is even if you're in a calorie deficit and you and you're eating a lot of saturated. Fat so
1: that's the that. thing we don't we don't necessarily know the answer to and I'll and I'll, I'm going to come back to that cuz how do you figure out how well your insulin is working and how insulin resistant are you? That is a critical question. But we do know that when we take healthy volunteers that don't have any evidence of insulin resistance just by, just by infusing high fat into their blood, but you know, they're not necessarily losing weight, it's just an infusion, they actually tend to become insulin resistant very, very quickly. So there is something about having high fat in the blood that tends to make us store it what we call ectopically in the wrong places in the liver and skeletal muscle. And then there's other things. Those are all the excess supply factors. And then there's factors inside the cell. So cellular inflammation tends to promote the deposition of fat when we have oxidative stress, which is related to inflammation. And finally, when our mitochondria, which is sort of the, you know, typically called the powerhouses of the cell. So they're responsible for oxidizing nutrients and, and creating energy. When they can't keep up, when they're dysfunctional and they can't burn the fat that's in our cells, that's supposed to be burned for energy and it keeps building up, that's when we get this insulin resistance too. And there are things that cause the mitochondria not to, to work that well. And so, again, some of it's genetic. So to wrap up, basically too many calories, unhealthy weight gain, eating high fat, especially high saturated fat, and then inflammation are all the things that tend to cause the fat to build up inside these organs.
0: And, and what, what type of people is this affecting? Is this something predominantly for people of a certain age or gender, or is it anyone?
1: The risk of di- type two diabetes does tend to increase with age, but we're seeing type two diabetes at all ages and we're seeing it in, in kids now and young kids.
0: So it can develop pretty quick like oh, from, yeah. from, from a, a healthy body, pathophysiology and the onset of it can, yes. can happen quickly.
1: Yes. And there's and again I don't want to underemphasize the role of genetics in this because there are definitely people who carry extra body weight even you know a lot of extra body weight who are obese and who don't have any overt sign of type 2 diabetes or even really a lot of insulin resistance when it's measured. So there are definitely genetic differences that determine who's going to have this problem of insulin resistance at a given body weight. And we also know, you know, related to genetic differences there are racial and ethnic differences. So for someone, for example, from South Asia, having a body mass index or a body weight that would be considered healthy for a Caucasian is actually putting you at risk for type 2 diabetes. So there's a lot that we don't understand about it, but we know for sure um, that there are definitely associations with certain types of foods and eating habits and with weight gain and with a surplus of saturated fats and calories.
0: And- from a, a patient point of view, what are, what are they dealing with on a day-to-day basis? If you develop type two diabetes, how does their life change?
1: It, it, it honestly probably depends how advanced your diabetes is. So I have patients that come to my office and their blood sugar is through the roof. You know, the, a, a, a random blood sugar is 300 or 400, which is extremely high. It shouldn't really be it shouldn't really be higher than, certainly shouldn't be higher than 200. It should really be more like less than 160. In that scenario, a person feels tired. They're urinating a lot. You know, they're, they just don't feel well. And that's someone who sometimes has to start on insulin right away because they're so symptomatic. And regardless, most doctors will start a patient like that on some medication to get the symptoms down and to help reduce the blood sugar as quickly as possible. And that looks like a life of taking pills of injecting yourself with needles and insulin, sometimes twice a day or more, it usually involves measuring your blood sugar. So in addition to the insulin injections, if you need insulin, you're also, you know, pricking your finger with a needle three, four times a day.
0: That's a, that's a, that's a big change for someone. Yeah. That's, you know, recently diagnosed. Yeah.
1: Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a lot to take in for that person. And I think that one of the things that makes me so sort of joyful about the work that I do is that I've had the experience of seeing people who come into my office in that state and depending on, you know, I don't I don't promise anything, but when they come to me, I tell them, you know, there's so much that you can do with lifestyle. You have the potential to actually reverse this condition. If it's a new, this is a brand new diagnosis. This is something that's in many, many cases reversible. Now, if you've had type two diabetes for 15 or 20 years, and you've been on insulin all that time, that's a different story. Like I said before, the threshold to reverse in that situation is going to be much higher. But even then, you know, I, have a, I have patients who are in their 70s who've been on insulin for 15 years. I've been their doctor for 15 years. And they finally decided, you know, I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to go, in, my case, in this case, plant-based. And within three months, the person was off insulin.
0: So that's the recommendation from from your end is a, is it just the same recommendation that you give to someone who's healthy and is interested in a whole food plant-based diet or is there sort of a specific type of diabetic you know uh, whole food plant-based diet that you you give people?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on where they're starting from as far as their blood sugar. So if they have a pretty if their blood sugar is not super high but they but they have pre-diabetes, Right, or borderline diabetes or early type 2 diabetes um, then it's not so there's not as much focus on the foods that are going to drive their sugar up you know i tell them that if you eat if you're eating mangoes or really sweet fruits in this scenario yes your sugar's going to go up but it's it's not necessarily because the mango is the problem but i people worry about seeing their sugar go up so when the sugar's already 300 or 400 i'm going to say listen for the for the first part for the first phase what i want you to do is focus on foods like legumes so beans, lentils, chickpeas, which are fantastic for people with type 2 diabetes because they, they tend to be foods that have a lot of fiber, that tend to be lower in calories, less calorie dense. They have great effects on the gut microbiome and, and, and they're very anti-inflammatory foods that translate into a lot of benefits for people with diabetes. And they're a great source of a lot of nutrients like protein and iron and so forth. Um, and of course, um, non-starchy vegetables are a, a great choice. But for the vast majority of my patients with type 2 diabetes, I am telling them just to focus on whole plant foods. And the foods that are highest yield to eliminate out of the diet are in addition to, of course, sugary beverages and sodas and junk food is actually meat. And we have a huge amount of evidence that processed meats carry a huge risk for type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance. So if they're eating foods like, ham and bacon and pepperoni, salami, sausage, hot dogs, all of those foods, getting those out of the diet has a huge impact.
0: And is it thought that going back to your point on the fat and the the insulin resistance, is that what? It's
1: partly the saturated fat, but it's also, again, it's the whole food. So iron in its heme form, so iron from animal foods is is one of the biggest contributors to inflammation at the cellular level. Transitioning away from Animal-based sources of iron to more plant-based sources of iron also helps with diabetes. And there's other things as well. There's the fact that a lot of these foods are metabolized by our gut bacteria to make a compound called and into our liver called to make a compound called TMAO or trimethylamine N-oxide, which um, is also linked to insulin resistance. So it's it's the nutrients in the foods, how they're packaged together, and how they affect our how they interact with our gut bacteria, all of that goes together.
0: So, are there any clinical trials or RCTs that have looked at patients with type 2 diabetes and compared uh, a standard, you know, recommended diabetes diet or perhaps a standard American diet against a whole food plant based diet and looked at outcomes over time?
1: Dr. Barnard and his group um, through Physicians Committee of Responsible Medicine have actually looked at a low fat vegan diet which was essentially a whole food plant-based diet compared with an American Diabetes Association diet at the time. This was um, their first study was published in 2006. And then a follow-up study for over a year follow-up was published in 2009. And what they did was they randomized patients to follow either one of those two diets. And in the, in the arm where they were asked to follow a low-fat vegan diet, they were basically told, don't count carbohydrates, don't count calories, just eat plant foods, just eat basically uh, legumes. uh, So beans, lentils, chickpeas, eat whole grains, eat fruits and eat vegetables. They were actually asked to limit added oils. They were asked to limit nuts, seeds and avocados. So it was a pretty low fat diet. And the American Diabetes Association group was asked to eat a calorie restricted diet according to what their body weight was. And so they were actually asked to eat smaller portions and be cognizant of how much they were eating. And at the end of the first study was 22 weeks and they followed them out for 74 weeks. And what they found across comparing those two groups is that the group following the low-fat vegan diet had better blood sugar control and more of them were able to come off or lower their medications than in the ADA, American Diabetes Association group. They also found that they actually lost more weight and they had lower cholesterol levels. They were actually these are patients who were actually not counting calories or measuring portions or doing all the things that are very typically what we're telling people with type 2 diabetes to do. We're saying if you look at instruction books for people with type 2 diabetes, many of them will have a picture of a white bagel and say just eat a quarter. Now I can guarantee eating a quarter of a white bagel is better than eating the whole thing. I absolutely agree, but there is a there is another way.
0: That's just looking at one component, calories.
1: Yeah. yeah, there is a better way.
0: After that study, did the ADA make any changes to their recommendations? And like I just wonder even even other patients. Yeah. And you probably can't answer this, but I imagine patients that were in that trial then would have been very interested to try the low fat <laughs> vegan diet.
1: So the American Diabetes Association actually now recommends a plant-based diet as one of the options for people with huge. type two diabetes. It's huge. It's fantastic.
0: So that came in after that uh, that trial. Yeah,
1: yeah, that came in after that. And 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 as of last year, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, which is another big group, um, now recommends a plant-based diet as the preferred diet for people with type two wow. diabetes. So this is this is now gone mainstream. This is not radical anymore to recommend a plant-based diet. But as we've learned from many studies that have been published, it really matters what type of foods you're eating within your plant-based diet. So there's healthy ways to eat plant-based. There's less healthy ways to eat plant-based. And if you have type 2 diabetes or you're at risk of type 2 diabetes, um, you really want to be focusing on the, again, the less processed foods. And Essentially focusing on the non-starchy ve- vegetables, some some of the starchy vegetables, the whole grains, not refined grains. Fruits are fine in the low-fat vegan diet. They looked at sort of lower glycemic index fruits, so fruits like berries, predominantly. But fruits, fruits, most fruits tend to be lower glycemic index than than some of the you know really processed, say, bread products. So those are those are fine. And then they were looking at, at legumes, so. This is a way of, of eating that um, many people find actually quite abundant because they've been told for so long to eat smaller portions. And on top of that, they're still taking tons of medications and it's not, none of it's really addressing the root cause. If they're not losing weight and they're not um, eating a diet that's nourishing and nutritious, they're really not addressing the root cause of their diabetes.
0: So tell me, you said you've had patients come in with type 2 bi- diabetes and you've been able to reverse it you've seen Mm -hmm. reversal of symptoms and obviously it's a spectrum it depends on how long they've had it have there been patients who have been able to completely get rid of insulin oh
1: yeah definitely I mean the the most recent example I have is a woman who is in her 70s and she's been on insulin for 20 years and she's definitely an outlier I didn't expect her to be able to come off insulin but
0: she's fully off insulin yeah Wow! Yeah,
1: she's still on. She's still on oral medications. She's still on on pills.
0: Was she a skeptic at the start?
1: Yes. Well, it, I've been After her doctor years. fifteen years, and she's still. And it wasn't until um, she has sort of a, an epiphany moment, and she decided to give it a try, and and I kind of talked her through what a plant based diet would look like with the foods that she already liked, and she's Puerto Rican like me, and so I had some facility with you know the foods that she liked, and I. And I said, you know, you should absolutely eat rice and beans. That's fantastic. And she had, she just, it's, people have to unlearn a lot of the advice that they've been told before. And I told her, if you like fruit, that's fantastic. Eat fruit, eat whatever, eat all the veggies that you happen to like. And and potatoes, if you like, especially if you like sweet potatoes, those are fantastic. So she just, she did that. And she eliminated the meat and the eggs and the dairy out of her diet, the processed foods, the snack crackers. She lost some weight. Not a ton. She didn't have a ton of weight to lose, but just the change in the diet, I actually within 36 hours got a phone call from her visiting nurse and said, you know, her sugars are, are are going pretty low. And I was like, oh, okay, well, let's decrease her insulin. And over the course of the next six months, we got her off insulin completely.
0: It's amazing. It's great. And there's 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 probably people listening who who either have type two diabetes or maybe a family member or a friend does. And maybe they're not as fortunate to to be able to come and see a doctor like you that completely understands it and is across it. I know you've written, you've you've got a paper on type 2 diabetes that I've read before, which is a great read and and I definitely send that around to people. But where where do you recommend people go if they want to find a little bit more information on type 2 diabetes and the role that nutrition can play and perhaps take some of that information to their doctor and how would you suggest that they approach that?
1: Yeah. So I think that, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the best resources is probably the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine website, which is uh, pcrm.org. They have a whole section on uh, diabetes as well as other health conditions. And they have a lot of resources there that are all evidence-based. And I would say that you know, the, the paper that we wrote is is written for, you know, in a medical journal and is something that is it's fairly long, but it does go through a lot of the evidence that was available at that time as of last year. And even even since then, there have now been even more studies about plant-based diets and diabetes, and that's open access. Anyone can read that or share with their Google. doctor.
0: I'll put a link there, but if you Google yeah. Dr. Michelle McMahon, type 2 diabetes, it comes yeah. straight up. Yeah, it should come up
1: you know, there's other, you know, for people who are interested in looking more at some coaching or more information, there's um, masteringdiabetes.org is a great group where they talk about how a low fat plant-based diet can be used to treat uh, type 2 diabetes and actually type 1. There's less evidence around treating type 1, but even people who have type 1 have some element of insulin resistance. So getting the unhealthy Insulin resistance, promoting foods out of the diet, like especially the the animal proteins and the saturated fats out of the diet can help a lot with insulin requirements. People with type one will almost always need to be on insulin for life, but the amount of insulin can be reduced if they're eating a healthier diet in many cases. But yeah, and and type two responds fantastic.
0: And just one extra point that I want to clarify. I know maybe some people with type Two diabetes have been recommended to go on a low carb diet mm-hmm. because there's there's been a little bit in the literature around a low carb diet and helping to sort of manage the symptoms of type 2 diabetes. What do you what do you think about that and how does that compare to this whole food plant based diet which is definitely not a low carb diet?
1: Right, right. I think it's I think it's really tempting and understandable why people would be advised to try a low carb diet because when you the food that raises your blood sugar the most is food that's rich in carbohydrates. So why not lower that food? It, it's tempting to think that you are addressing the root cause of the problem if you eliminate carbohydrate-rich foods because then your blood sugar will go down. And so what we're seeing with many of the low-carb diets, including the very low-carb diets like keto, is people's blood sugar absolutely goes down. The issue is this. You cannot say that you are reversing your diabetes if you're not eating carbohydrates because what diet what type 2 diabetes is is a problem with tolerating carbohydrates because your insulin's not working properly so if you're not eating carbohydrates it's just you're just starving your body of the you know it's of the carbohydrates yeah but you're not actually you're still not addressing the root cause now I will admit that if you're following a, a low carb diet and you're losing weight, then the weight loss is addressing is, is addressing the root cause. And so that's what makes this very hard to tease out. But what I would love to see is a study where for two groups of people that lose the same amount of weight, feeding one of them carbohydrates, feeding them both carbohydrates, but one's following a low carb diet, one's following a high carb diet, how do they respond? We already know that People eating plant-based diets who reverse their diabetes, that's true reversal. They're eating a high-carb diet, you know, sometimes up to 70 or 80% carbs, and they're still not having diabetes. Their sugar staying tolerating it. It's normal. So that, to me, is addressing the root cause. If you are following a low-carb or keto diet, and what happens to you if you eat a mango, that's the real test. Is your insulin working?
0: Well answered. Well- Michelle, thank you very much for joining me again on the Plant Proof Podcast. You are a wealth of knowledge and no doubt I'll uh, reach out to you next time I'm, I'm in New York to get you back on the show. And I didn't paint the picture actually for the listeners, but we're in Chinatown. Yeah. Uh, what was the recommendation of that restaurant you said I should check out?
1: Oh, Ja, Ja, Ja. It's, ja, Ja, Ja. It should, we should really be calling it Ha, 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 but they all pronounce it Ja, Ja, Ja.
0: It's Mexican. Uh, okay.
1: yeah. <laughs> I feel bad saying Ja, Ja, Ja. <laughs>
0: Uh, well, I'll have to check that out and I will report yeah. back to everyone and, and, and let you know how it goes. So awesome. once again, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate you coming down. And I know that all of the listeners are going to benefit from from hearing from you yet again.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Simon.
0: Whoa. I told you Dr. Michelle McMacken was a wealth of knowledge. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode. If you did and, and want to share feedback, please do so on Instagram and and tag at plant underscore proof and Michelle's page at veg underscore MD. That's V-E-G underscore M-D. We would love to see what you thought of our conversation. and, And also we're happy to answer any questions that you may have. Have an awesome day wherever you are. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.